You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Good afternoon and welcome to Clinical Pearls. I'm your host, Curry Bordelon. Today, we're delighted to welcome experts from UAB Arts and Medicine and Music Therapy. Welcome to you all. As we get started, uh, I would like, thank you. I would like to take a moment as we get started and let you introduce yourselves and what your role is within UAB Hospital. Kimberly? Sure. Um, I'm Kimberly Kirkland. I've been with UAB for 20 years, and I am the director of our UAB Institute for Arts and Medicine. And our, our work is centered around um, patient care uh, with the mission to enhance healing and wellness for patients, families, and staff through the arts and creativity. And that program is now about six years old. Thank you. Uh, Wesley, would you like to share with you, with us your role within the health, uh, UAB hospital? Sure. I'm the music therapy clinical specialist for UAB hospital. Uh, music therapy is a department here that treats patients in all inpatient units at the hospital. And uh, we work to address different functional goals that we'll talk about later. Uh, my role is to primarily make sure that all of the music therapists on staff are keeping up with their continuing education credits and making sure to educate them on any particular techniques or equipment that we may need around the hospital um, to make sure that they stay up to date on all their clinical needs. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Salam, can you tell us your role within UAB Hospital and, and uh, how you fit into the, to the mix of arts and medicine? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Salam Green. I'm an artist in residence uh, with Arts and Medicine, and I do creative writing, poetry, and storytelling, and expressive writing in the hospital setting to support healing um, as well as art and education. Excellent. Well, welcome to all of you. We're really excited to have you join us today. So as we, let's get started on a conversation, and I want to talk about Give us a general idea about what arts and medicine involves. Like, how does it fit into the hospital system on how we deliver care uh, to our patients? Kimberly, would you like to start? Sure. So just to give a little background, um, there's an overall umbrella term of arts and health, and that is focused on um, the idea uh, and research that shows that the arts and creativity are integral to health, to our health. So the arts can be incorporated into healthcare facilities, which is you know where arts and medicine falls. Um, the arts can be incorporated into medical education, public health and community health programming, and um, really anywhere that focuses on um, healing and well-being. And so arts and medicine uh, in the hospital setting is uh, we really incorporate the arts and creativity as a way to um, enhance the healing process. And so that can be through um, human connection, human interaction. We have a seven artists in residence who um, they're in all different areas of the arts, like um, dance, theater, storytelling, um, like Salam as a poet and creative writer, visual arts, pretty much all the arts modalities. And um, we can go to the bedside to provide arts um, programming. We can also um, work with not only patients, but families as well. And we also look at the physical environment. So how can um, healing be enhanced through um, the aesthetics of, of the hospital? So not only will we do um, like arts projects and arts experiences with patients, families, and staff as well, but also we might do um, an art installation or have a, a performance in a space. Uh, so it can um, look like a, a number of different things, but all under the goal of enhancing healing, wellness, um, and really the, the overall patient experience. Okay, thank you. This is this is very helpful. So, Wesley, I'd like to talk a little bit about how what's the general idea of music therapy within this same space of arts and medicine, and how you can help uh, uh, complement other therapies. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, as Kimberly was saying, there's a lot of research that shows creative arts can real part of our general well-being and our health. Uh, as music therapists, we take that a step further and we try and use that ability for the arts to utilize that in our case particularly music uh, to try and treat different functional needs that the patient may have that could be 
their emotional well-being. It could be any developmental issues they may be having, especially for neonates or for children. Um, it could be uh, end-of-life care, helping them come to terms with their new goals of care or their new um, trajectory in life. Or it could just be rehabilitating them, trying to get them moving a little bit better, uh, remembering a little more easily, maintaining their attention, improving their language skills. Um, our job is basically to use music as a treatment tool to try and help reach whatever goals the patients may have to get them healthy and to get them out of the hospital. Um, and so we do frequently work with other therapists and sometimes we'll work on our own as well to try and um, target different ways that we can use the music making process or music listening um, or even just talking about music to try and help them generalize those skills to the non-music areas. For example, if someone were to want to play the ukulele, as you saw in the picture, uh, you know, for us, we're trying to work on their fine motor skills so that even if they're not going to go home and be a professional ukulele player, uh, they can still go home and um, manage all those small buttons on their blouse and um, do all the fine small packaging for their for food, that type of thing, to try and help improve that motor dexterity uh, once they get out of the hospital. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, Kimberly, you mentioned uh, just a moment ago about um, artists in residency at a hospital and arts therapist. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the difference in those two? Sure, absolutely. So an artist in residence is a professional artist in whatever their modality is and um, or they've been professionally trained. Um, you know, a lot of people have a college degree in their art form. And so they, uh, they're also trained to navigate complex environments, of course, like that, the hospital, and work with a really a, a broad um, array of people with different life experiences, different backgrounds. And the, the, the key difference also is that um, an artist in residence does not have therapeutic goals they're trying to achieve. They're just, when an artist goes into a space, it's really focused on overall general well-being and healing. And, um, you know, we also use that uh, personal connection as a really important piece of, of what we do. Um, creative arts therapists, as you heard from Wesley, um, music therapists do an, an amazing array of of different um, things, but but creative artists, uh, creative arts therapists in general, they have targeted um, special education training, um, clinical requirements to provide therapy, therapeutic interventions that they use the art form as the modality, but they're, like as Wesley was mentioning, it's not um, necessarily to achieve um, arts goals, but, but other therapeutic goals. Thank you. Uh, Salam, I'd like to have a, a, to pull you into the conversation and really talk about how the power of the spoken word adds to the therapeutic mix. And also, I'd like for you to describe a typical day that you have whenever you're engaging with patients. Oh, absolutely. I think um, to piggyback on what has already been said, said, part of my typical day is patient-centered care. And as a creative writer, uh, poet, spoken word artist, um, I intentionally go into the healing environment already ready to deepen the human connection with other people. And I think that's what the power of spoken word does. Um, my everyday is uh, usually to walk into a um, hospital setting, whether it's a bedside, whether it's uh, a patient who may be doing a workshop alongside other patients, or maybe it's just a family who's sitting in a waiting room. And I ask them the million dollar question, do you wanna hear poem? Or, or, or do you want to hear a piece of creative writing? And oftentimes um, people will say yes, or people will be ready to hear that or ready to uh, be invited in uh, to the spoken word. And the healing power of words, the healing power of wellness that words brings to other people, whether it's a memory of a poem that they remember their third grade teacher teaching them, or whether it's uh, 
just a word that stood out that gave them inspiration and joy for the day. Um, that's my entire goal in deepening that human connection. Uh, one particular story, uh, many years ago, I started out as a volunteer with um, AIM Arts and Medicine, and then was uh, eventually hired as an artist in resident as a contractor. And as a volunteer, I began to volunteer in many uh, family-centered spaces with patient-centered care. And I would always go in and do this poem where I would ask them, um, what lifts your head that's equal to the stars? What makes you bask in the light? Um, what is equal to the sun and has the same beauty as power? It's joy. That's what it is. It's you. It's me. It's we. We are joy. And um, I did that poem in, I think, a drama of the trauma burn unit with um, a particular family member who was waiting um, with uh, a patient. And I later saw her in the cafeteria. And I asked her and she came up to me. She said, hey, poem lady, poet lady or whatever. And she said, I gave that poem to the person who was waiting um, uh, with her. And I asked her a question just jokingly. I was like, well, did you say it right? And she said, no, ma'am, I said it better. And in that moment, it just really sparked the joy of what <laughs> creative writing, poetry and spoken word can add in, in, in that environment and help with engagement. This is this is great. I'm so this is a very. It's a great story to feel that connection and how you connected with your patients. So I'd like to use that same theme as we're talking about the connectivity of our patients and how you connect with patients at different, you know, across the lifespan, at different ages and different complications and so forth. So, Wesley, how do you connect with your patients of uh, varying age groups uh, and complications? Yeah, so I guess we'll just go chronologically uh, with neonates. Um, so we frequently work with patients who are born prematurely, uh, who may have been born up to six or seven weeks early, if not longer. And uh, we connect with that baby, um, by trying to help work on their ability to be handled. Uh, frequently, uh, babies at this age have a hard time feeding. They have a hard time being held. They have a hard time handling noise or any other type of stimulus of any kind. And so our job is to just try and teach that baby how to interact with others. Um, when they get out, they're going to have to be parents. They're going to have to be fed by their parents. And so our job is to really get them used to that. And so we uh, do a developmental massage that helps them learn to tolerate tactile stimulation um, alongside using the music to try and help keep them calm. Frequently, the music serves as a distraction for them. Um, and a lot of times we can use the mother's voice. So we might have the mother singing if they're present in the room and they can provide that lullaby for the baby uh, while we perform the massage. And then eventually we can teach the mother to perform that same massage so that she can continue to practice those skills and continue to essentially exercise that baby's ability to be held. Um, and then if unfortunately we find a baby who might be in an end of life situation, uh, we really work closely with the families to develop some sort of legacy project that may be recording the heartbeat of the baby and singing the mother's favorite lullaby for the baby over it um, so that she can always have that connection with the baby. It may be creating a CD or a playlist um, that the mother or the father wants to dedicate to the baby. Um, and then just really trying to celebrate their life in a way that, um, can help through their bereavement and their grieving process. Uh, so we find uh, at this stage, frequently we're working either on um, trying to get them able to go home and uh, to tolerate that, or um, to try and help the family through the process of anticipatory grieving and bereavement. Um, as patients get older, um, most most children are treated over at Children's, but once uh, they hit that age, if they have psychiatric needs, there is a psychiatric unit at UAB Hospital um, where we treat anybody from the age of 10 or 11 to 18. Um, and these are children who frequently have behavioral issues or may have um, intense anxiety or depression and may have even attempted suicide before. And so they're all in a very vulnerable state at that time. Um, we try and use the music to help them connect to each other and to help connect to us, the staff, um, in a way that's relatively safe and um, and navigating those vulnerable situations using music that uh, we've targeted to be helpful for them. Um, we may get them 
playing instruments together, uh, doing team building exercises, or even just listening to a song that they probably haven't heard before and uh, trying to figure out what the artist was intending and allowing them to um, try and draw vision from it or just to try and relate to what that artist is going through so that they can recognize they're not alone. Uh, once um, we start treating adults, um, as many of you know, uh, most of UAB's patients are adults. Uh, and anybody in that middle age range, um, adulthood all the way up to, say, 60, 65, um, many of them are trying to get back to work. So we may work on their vocational skills or their occupational skills, uh, get them moving again, trying to get them um, practicing things like visual scanning by reading different music uh, sheets or reading lyric sheets, um, trying to get them using their voice again. Many of our patients have to talk for their job, um, like us. and uh, if they've had a sort of other injury that's made their articulation a little bit off, we can try and use singing as another exercise in addition to their speech therapy to try and help their um, articulation and their intelligibility. And then um, as we get into the geriatric age, uh, frequently we find that we're working on cognitive stimulation. Um, older patients tend to ha be at high risk for delirium when they're in the hospital, especially when they're in the hospital for more than just a few days. And so our job is to try and keep them active, keep them engaged. Um, we can use music making activities in different ways like dancing and um, playing instruments or singing to try and help stimulate different parts of the brain um, that may, may become a little hypoactive uh, while they're here. And so um, really being able to target those different parts of the brain using different aspects of music um, is how we really treat a lot of that cognitive stimulation. And then also at end of life for older adults, similar to as with babies, um, working with the patients, working with the families to develop that legacy that they may want to leave behind or that they would like to um, provide for that patient um, before they pass so that they can have that um, good uh, emotional connection through them. Um, and then we can help process that with the patients and with the families um, so that they can have a better experience at end of life. Kimberly, how how do you how do you engage families during this process, and how receptive are families uh, into the acceptance or the you know asking for um, arts and medicine or any uh, music therapy? So um, we do we you know part of our mission is working with not only patients but um, but staff and family members as well. And so a lot of times, um, you know, those, those things are, are directly for the family. Uh, one example, or actually two, of ex well, two examples of that are um, uh, parents who have babies in the neonatal intensive care unit. Um, while the baby is the patient, the parents are, are there, um, you know, they're, they're experiencing uh, anxiety, concern for their um, children's child's well-being, um, and so we we work with them. We have a couple different classes that we provide um, each week, and um, what we see with that is um, it's and you can see an example of of that that's actually coming up. But we do um, workshops where parents can make. Um, Halloween costumes um, and other different types of costumes that it, it provides not only, um, you know, obviously a distraction from what they're dealing with, but it gives them some control over their situation. Um, you know, they can actually work uh, on creating something that's going to be a, a memory for the child um, as they go they grow up. We've even had um, parents say that, you know, they're going to keep this little costume that they made um, for the rest of their child's life and have it, you know, be as part of their um, their story of when they were um, they were born. Another thing that we do is we work with um, women who uh, have high-risk pregnancies, and so they could possibly be in the hospital for um, anywhere from days all the way to one to two months is, you know, if they have to stay in the hospital until, um, you know, the, the baby can be born. And um, in a lot of those situations, um, it can be isolating, especially if they've come from, um, you know, 
hours away and their family members can't stay with them. And so it can be um, a bit of an isolating experience. And so by having workshops, um, and this is uh, this is pre-COVID, but having workshops where these women can come together, uh, the, the purpose of it is not to have a support group, but what we typically see happens are conversations and people sharing their experiences and, um, you know, and feeling like they're not alone, you know, kind of normalizing um, the, the worry, the concerns that they might be having. So, um, you know, and then we work with all, um, all different, we work with, with uh, families also um, at Children's of Alabama, um, some other hospitals, and then um, even with uh, different community um, members, so um, in different communities. Thank you. Salam, uh, Salam and Wesley, I kind of talk, I want to talk a little bit about the referral process and how how you get um, how you get providers, clinicians, uh, nurses, physicians, nurse practitioners. How do you get your referrals and how do you get involved in a patient's care? Or do they ask you, uh, hey, you know, can you please see a patient for me and they you know, place an order or is it something that you request? Well, I think, um, uh, and I know. Sorry. Uh, yeah, uh, Say mm -hmm. go ahead. So the referral process for us at Arts, um, as an artist in residence, we do have a referral process where it comes through um, referral network where a nurse manager or a nurse or any practitioner can uh, see a patient and then have an opportunity to ask them if they would like an opportunity or an engagement with arts and medicine. We get that referral and we head out to that patient's room and uh, provide those services. Also, our, um, as an artist in residence, we have designated spaces that we have built partnerships with um, throughout the hospital setting and the community setting, where we actually go in and we do um, <coughs> prescriptive workshops, trainings, and one-on-ones with um, either uh, staff, patients, or families. So we're able to um, do that referral process where a um, nurse manager, a doctor, or a practitioner at any time uh, can request um, an artist in residence through a referral process and we go out. Even they can say that they're looking for someone to support them uh, with needing uh, an activity such as maybe a coloring activity or a uh, sewing kit. And we're able to put that together and bring that out to them. Or um, sometimes uh, we have specific artists in residence that may go into a specific space with a nurse or a manager or with a practitioner or a clinician. And a clinician might say, this person uh, really loves poetry. And then they're able to uh, give me a call and I can go out and I can do that as well. So Wesley, I'd like to continue that same theme of how you get other <laughs> providers. Uh, how do you get involvement within the patient? And uh, what is that process for you? Yeah, so with music therapy, because um, we're more on the clinical side of things, uh, we get referrals through IMPACT, which is our electronic medical record system here at UAB. And um, we'll usually get referrals from um, other providers, such as nurses or therapists, or we may get orders from physicians um, to target specific goals, um, kind of what Kimberly was talking about earlier. Uh, we usually have a, an idea of what they're wanting us to work on before we get there, uh, be it decreasing their anxiety, providing emotional support at end of life, uh, addressing cognition, communication, or physical issues, or um, distracting them from pain. And so um, they'll write a referral in the electronic medical record, um, providing that reason, providing when they think would be a good time for us to come. And then uh, that is sent to our task list um, on the program. And so every morning we get to the hospital, we can see who all we need to treat that day um, and prioritize uh, patients accordingly. And then um, we go and provide an initial initial assessment for that patient uh, where we kind of get their baseline um, for whatever it is we're going to be working on with them. So we may ask them questions about um, how they're coping with their hospitalization, or we may um, try and get them to perform certain functional tasks so we can see how much assistance they may need at first. And then uh, we can set our goals accordingly. And as we treat them, see how they improve upon those. Um, Sometimes other providers will stop us in the hall and say like, hey, this person's really having a bad moment. Uh, do you mind going in there? And um, we usually are able to quickly get them to get that referral into 
to the medical record and then we can go into the room from there if we have the time. Um, the one area where that's different is on the psychiatric units. All of our treatment there is uh, group-based. And so every patient on the psychiatric unit gets a referral for music therapy and um, they're expected to attend groups. And uh, we document if they don't come um, is usually one of their goals for treatment that they attend groups regularly. Um, and so that's a little more automatic. Same with patients on the palliative care unit here at UAB Hospital. Um, they get an automatic referral for music therapy just because that tends to be a very um, emotionally intense moment for patients and their families. Uh, but you, everything's done through the electronic medical records and we chart all of our progress and we chart when it's time to discharge the patient. But that works for our patient care. So we have a question from our audience uh, and it's going to, it's related to uh, insurance and how this plays into the therapy process. Kimberly, I'd like to ask you, is in, is uh, arts therapy or arts and medicine or any therapeutic services provide, is it covered under insurance typically? So um, I can't I'll let, I know Wesley can speak to the music therapy part. I know art therapy, it, dif, it depends on what state you're in. Um, and I'm not really completely sure uh, how that works. But um, for arts and medicine, what we do is we are, um, we do fundraising because um, we are a nonprofit. So we do raise funds for the work that we do. And then we're also paid for our services um, by the various hospitals, uh, including UAB. Uh, who we work with. Thank you. Salam, uh, what about in your case, uh, is, is, are your services typically covered uh, within the arts and medicine service uh, line or is it covered under insurance as a separate, um, a separate entity? It's under the arts and medicine line. So as an artisan residence, it's specifically what Kimberly just stated. Okay, excellent. And Wesley, your service uh, that's provided to the hospital is it um, is it provided through insurance? Um, so, as Kimberly was saying, insurance is uh, basically on a state by state basis. Uh, if you were to go to Georgia, music therapy would be covered by insurance. But in the state of Alabama, there's currently no state licensure for music therapy, and so insurance doesn't recognize music therapy, and they won't cover it. Uh, so, most places, especially large facilities like this, um, pay for it out of their own pocket. Um, so, we're directly internally funded by the hospital at no charge to patients um, because what we're doing is directly impacting their um, goals of care. Um, most people are familiar with at this point, the Affordable Care Act and um, how, how the funding for hospitals has been affected by how, um, how the patient rates their quality of care at the hospital. And so programs like arts and medicine, programs like music therapy, um, can really help improve those patient satisfaction scores, thus improving the amount of funding that the hospital receives. Um, and then for us, because a lot of the goals we're trying to reach are aligned with their goals of care for the hospital overall, uh, let's take, for example, babies. Um, neonates who receive music therapy for multimodal stimulation, which is that uh, neurologic developmental massage that you saw in some of the pictures, uh, they tend to go home up to eight days sooner, which is um, saving over $10,000 per baby. Um, so it really does provide a financial incentive for hospitals to hire therapists, to hire artists and residents, uh, because their patients get out healthier, they get out happier, and they get out sooner. Thank you. Salam, I'd like to spend a little time talking about uh, group activities. And, uh, and I'll go around to the rest of our panel with this. But Salam, can you talk about group-based experiences that you have uh, with your patient population? Absolutely. And I know some of this may change as a result of um, COVID, but um, I have worked with adolescent psych, um, high-risk obstetrics, um, many, many spaces, adolescent psych, and I do what I call peer-to-peer -peer kind of group experiences. And so what I always do is bring in a journal and everyone that um, I come in contact with before they leave, they have their own personal journal. And I encourage those groups to um, begin to start thinking about how they can begin to journal their experiences in the hospital setting or their experiences with whatever type of health um, issue they may be going through, um, as well as families. 
And so my group experiences in adolescent psych can be anywhere between five and 15 adolescents. We come in and uh, we have a writing activity that we do for the day. And then we have an opportunity to share. What I've seen with these group experiences um, is building a whole lot of confidence. Um, in adolescent psych, uh, one of the last group experiences that I was able to do uh, was lyrical healing. And as Wesley talks about uh, music therapy, part uh, that I love to do as part of uh, my job is using writing and lyrics as an opportunity uh, to turn words into healing and then turn that healing, those healing words into music, into beats. And I oftentimes would have an adolescent that asked me the magic question, you know, Miss um, Salam, do you rap? And I'm like, no, I do not rap, but I do do poetry and poetry is rap. And those uh, rap lyrics um, can be very healing. And so we spent a lot of time doing that peer-to-peer kind of mentoring um, in adolescent psych um, with high-risk obstetrics, I do the same thing with scrapbooking and uh, group settings where we make sure that those um, moms or uh, those patients are able to take home their very first poem or their very first scrapbooking opportunity that's, that has creative writing there for their child as well. So I do several groups and I think that is, uh, has been one of the highlights of bringing community together in the um, healing environment. So Salem, I'd like to stay with you a little bit longer with this and, and talk about something you and I've uh, talked about briefly before, which is that holding space. Can you talk a little bit more about that concept that you that you know of? Absolutely. I think uh, holding space defines what we do as artists and residents. Um, as I began to talk about it, uh, patient-centered care, deepening the human connection and how art engages and enhances that connection. Um, my job is to come in and invite um, the patient um, into the experience. Um, like, I, like Kimberly was saying, we don't necessarily have therapeutic goals. Our only goal is for the experience to be centered around the needs of that patient and that family at that time. And so my idea and my whole uh, love of holding space is to just come in and invite that patient into the experience and to have the experience that that patient needs to have um, at the time that that patient needs to have that experience. Um, an example would be many times I, I may go, um, go into palliative care and um, the nurse or manager or whomever may tell me this particular patient is not having a very good day. Can I maybe just go in and just sit with the patient, um, give them a journal and a pen um, and maybe a writing prompt? and um, just give them a minute to see if they would like to respond or express themselves um, and or socially, emotionally have an opportunity to have someone just to listen, to listen to their words, to listen to them begin to um, articulate if they want to or not, or if that patient decides or determines to. Thank you. Kimberly, I would like to spend a little bit of time to continue the group-based conversation we were having earlier. How do you uh, utilize group-based uh, services and how do you engage groups? I know, you know COVID, obviously we have restrictions on some things, but how, do you, uh, how can you use group-based activities within uh, your environment? Sure, so, um, I'll talk about a couple different, uh, even environments that we um, engage with groups. Of course, at, um, at the hospital, um, you know, like we were mentioning, we work with um, high-risk obstetrics and the parents in the RNICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. We actually do a lot of workshops throughout um, Center for Psychiatric Medicine. So we do workshops with the addiction recovery program. Um, as Salam was mentioning, we offer several weekly classes for um, the adolescent psychiatry unit. Um, and... Um, in, in several of the, the different um, adult psychiatry units as well. Um, and, and in those spaces, again, a lot of it is, is opportunities not only to engage in, in art making, art experiences um, and creativity, but again, you know, creating that sense of community that we see. 
And that also leads us outside of the hospital too. We do a lot of work. Some of the photographs that have been coming up um, are of our Aging Creatively program that we've actually been doing since before arts and medicine started officially. But um, really using the arts as a tool for um, for healthy aging. There's, I mean, the the research continues to come out about um, you know the benefits of the arts and aging, and so we. Um, partner with HUD subsidized facilities and bring in all different types of arts classes and um, uh, different series. And we offer visual art and dance and um, uh, music sing-alongs and on all sorts of different things like that. Um, and another type of group that we uh, work with, we have a, a wonderful partnership that we're so thankful for with the School of Health Professions Occupational Therapy Department. And so um, so we've been doing some different group work with them. Um, every summer, we had our first virtual version, but um, this was our third summer to do um, work alongside them to offer a therapeutic magic camp. And um, it was for children with um, hemiplegia. So, uh, you know, weakness on one side of their body. So, and Kevin Spencer right there, he is our partner in that. Um, he's a, a, an illusionist and he has created this uh, series of um, you know, magic tricks that actually uh, help further therapeutic goals. So, um, and that's why we're working with the occupational therapy um, students on, on that project. And we saw um, kids were, uh, as a result of this kind of two week process, children um, were actually had better um, function with their uh, affected limb. And of course, uh, the other thing that we find is just quality of life and um, increase in self-confidence too. So. Uh, and then finally, our newest group that we're going to be uh, engaging with, again, because of this partnership with uh, School of Health Professions, is we recently got a grant to start, a, and Salam is uh, one of our um, key um, pieces of this um, project, but we're doing 10-week um, virtual workshops of expressive writing for people with uh, we have a research component with that to see um, how that affects um, emotional uh, wellness. So as you can see, you know, there's there's so many different spaces and opportunities to bring people together both in person and now virtually um, using the arts to create connections, which again is so important right now during, you know, the time of the pandemic. Yes, for sure. Thank you. Uh, Wesley, I'd like to continue this conversation about groups. Uh, and I want you to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, music therapy and what type of group activities. And then I want to uh, continue our conversation to talk about uh, training, uh, any potential residency programs and what resources people might have. But let's start with group based activities that you do in your environment, Wesley. Okay, sure. Um, so a lot of similar things to what they were talking about already. To create experience for them, uh, ours tends to be a little more directed towards what their therapeutic goals are. Um, so, um, for example, Salam was mentioning songwriting. Sometimes, uh, just having that ability to sit down, write out whatever you're feeling, and uh, develop that um, that mindset of whatever ends up coming to your thought and getting that out on paper can be a cathartic experience in and of itself. Um, we sometimes provide that. Uh, sometimes the songwriting may be targeted towards uh, maybe that we were developing coping skills. So the song may be writing about specific things that you can do to cope with uh, whatever you're going through. Uh, or it may be um, how can you appropriately resolve conflicts? How can you uh, calm yourself when you're feeling angry or sad? Um, Sometimes we may do different uh, group instrumental tasks where like a drum circle or uh, we'll sometimes use tone chimes or bells uh, where they have to rely on each other for the music making process successful. Um, and so that may mean that one person is in charge of rhythm, one person is in charge of melody, um, and they have to... Uh, take over that leadership position and learn how to interact with peers both in an authoritative way and also in a collaborative way without um, breaking those boundaries with each other. 
Um, so, we also uh, work on things like sorry. orientation. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, no, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, um, so with some of our more severe patients, say those with schizophrenia or dissociative identity disorder, we may work on things like reality orientation, uh, using music as a tool to try and help bring them back to what their experience is in reality um, so that we can help try and get them to where they're ready for discharge um, and they don't still maintain those delusions or um, those uh erratic behaviors uh so uh, different I, I guess in a sense any type of music making activity can be effective for those things as long as you're directing them in a certain way and that's kind of where our group therapies come into play thank you this thank you wesley and thank you all for you've given us a lot of great information let's talk a little bit about training uh specialization and things of this nature we have a, a question from our audience that It'll be part of the, the question that I want to ask is, first of all, how are you trained into, basically, how are you moving from a performance uh, environment into a therapeutic environment? Like what training is involved? And is there a sort of residency program where you can train others, like a, almost like a preceptorship, if you will? So let's start with Salam. Salam, what, how did you move from the personal performance space into a therapeutic space what training occurred uh, during that? And do you ever have other students that are learning from you? Yes, absolutely. Great question. Um, I do have a background in community uh, poetry, spoken word, as well as literary healing and social emotional education in English. So I have a trained background as a trained artist and also as a trained teaching artist and educator. So my background is in teaching art and um and teaching art creative writing and expressive writing but i volunteered uh before i started with um, arts and medicine and through that volunteer experience i got an opportunity to be trained by other artists and residents as well as um, kimberly on the different modalities and modes of what really made a great artist in residence what really made someone who was able to go into um, the healing environment and to support social emotional skills utilizing uh, poetry as a tool or uh, in creative writing as a tool to enhance healing and well-being. And so that training as a volunteer helped lead me into um, getting a residency. And through that residency, I got continual professional development um, through, um, my, through arts and medicine and through arts and health um, on social emotional skills, on um, non-therapeutic practices to help support wellness, also um, to work alongside other artists who were already trained on how they use their modality with um, the different um, populations. Also working with a lifespan population and human development and family studies and uh, utilizing those theories alongside my own uh, experience with creative writing and poetry. The wonderful thing I love about um, being an artist in residence and working um, in arts and medicine is um, it is an invitation to help support people to uh, enhance what um, they need to be enhanced and to support the loneliness or the distraction by using art, creative writing, poetry versus performing. So I had to really learn how to step back from the performance and then just kind of give people the tools um, that they needed to become their own performers or to just fall back in love to what they already have done. And so professional development is available here through that. And I think Kimberly can speak more a little bit about residencies and the opportunities that are out there through professional organizations. It's a perfect movement into uh, camera. I was going to ask Kimberly next. Uh, can you tell us about your transition from uh, just in, uh, briefly tell us about your transition from performance into the clinical space and residency programs? So, um, so briefly, yeah, so my background is music. I have a music degree in musical theater. Um, and so over the 20 years that I've been at UAB, it's, it's evolved. So I spent 10 years in, in arts education. Um, and so actually that part of that can fall under the umbrella of arts and health and arts and well-being because um, through community uh, workshops and community work um, that can fall under public health and community um, well-being. 
Uh, and then uh, we did transition into arts and uh, in, in healing and health, arts for health. And so um, University of Florida has, um, is they are some of the pioneers in the field of arts in medicine and arts and health. So I also have a master's degree in, in arts and medicine. And, um, and we've had interns come through with us. Um, we do anyone who works with us. Um, obviously the, the minimum is that they are a professional artist, but then we have a, a long shadowing process where, um, you know, they shadow another artist and then the artist, the, the, you know, a current professional artist in residence, then, um, you know, provides feedback for, for them. Um, we do uh, con continuing um, education as well. Um, and we provide that for our artists and residents. And, and there is um, a national organization. It's the National Organization for Arts and Health. And actually their annual conference is coming up in a uh, very shortly this month. So um, so those are just some resources to get you started if you're interested, but um, but yeah, that would be a good good place. Excellent, thank you. And Wesley, I'd like to continue to you, uh, to you as well and how you moved, you know, briefly talk about how you moved from the performance space uh, into the therapeutic space. And are there any resources if someone's interested, uh, is, it, is it, are there any resources out there uh, for someone to read more about it? Certainly. Uh, so for music therapy, you're required to get a bachelor's degree in music therapy. Um, it's a four and a half year degree. Uh, during that time, you do coursework on kinesiology, psychology, and, and just the process of music cognition so that you understand how music affects the brain and affects the body. Um, you, it's, it's very similar to nursing in the sense that you tend to uh, take classes each semester specifically on how music therapy may this population or might be used in this sort of treatment. And each semester you also have a practicum where you have to spend some time each week uh, under the supervision of a music therapist uh, where you're working with patients or working with students or working with clients um, for whatever population you're learning about that semester. Um, then after you finish the first four years of the degree program, you do a six month full-time internship similar to the preceptorship uh, that nurses go through or the um, clinical rotations that other therapy disciplines go through. Um, ours is six months. So for example, right now, now we're here from Belmont UD, who started um, last month, and she'll be here through March. And um, she works closely with us to try and start developing those clinical skills in a full-time capacity um, so that by the time she graduates, she'll have had uh, 1,200 hours of clinical experience um, and practice so that she can then sit on the certification board exam, which for us gives us the credential NTBC, uh, which is a nationally recognized credential. Um, by the Department of Health. Um, and so you always wanna look for the MTBC credential with somebody who's practicing as a music therapist, uh, because that means that they've at least developed um, the skill sets needed through that bachelor's degree or master's equivalency. Um, some states now are requiring a master's degree and pretty soon that will be a national requirement. Um, as with other disciplines, we've kind of noticed this inflation in degrees. Um, but I think the main thing is to make sure that if you want to become a music therapist, that you recognize that there's a degree involved with that. Um, so I think I provided a link to uh, cbmt.org, uh, which is our credentialing agency. And this is where you can find um, our scope of practice. You can find uh, resources for how to become a music therapist, educational reference. Um, for those of us who are music therapists, this is where we go to um, put in for our continuing education, make sure we maintain our certification. Um, and then if you're interested in different schools, you can go to Music Therapy, um, which is also provided here, um, which is our professional organization, similar um, to the American Psychological Association, where you can find different schools that may offer different levels of music therapy degrees. You can find what it takes to become a music therapist in the sense of uh, different professional skills you may need. Um, this is also where our journals of research are located. Um, you can also find them in almost any um, educational database that through your university's um, 
library systems, um, the Journal of Music Therapy being our uh, preeminent journal, and then um, we have a few other ones that uh, may cater more towards specific populations or for specific types of clinicians. Um, but yeah, most major facilities will offer an internship site such as UAB um, where once people complete their coursework, they can come here and study uh, in a full-time capacity to become a clinician. This is some great information. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you all so much for your time. I would like to have one, uh, a quick one minute takeaway uh, time where we can go around the panel one uh, like I said, in the final minute together, just really tell us a quick takeaway you want anybody to to hear from you as we close out. Kimberly? Um, well, usually when I talk about uh, arts and medicine and arts and health, uh, I always talk about the um, inherent nature of all people to be creative. Um, and of course, that's indicative of, you know, cave paintings and the, that, that art has been created, music, dance, um, visual arts, theater has been, has been done for tens of thousands of years. And so I always um, put that in the context of, um, you know, it's, it's natural to who we are. And so um, the arts, everybody expresses themselves creatively, no matter what your modality is, whether it is called an art form or not, um, whether it's cooking or, or sewing or crafting, we're all creative beings. And I think when we tap into that creativity, um, it, it enhances our health and well-being. And um, I've mentioned this but before, but um, even the World Health Organization, um, you know, health, to be healthy is not, you know, merely the absence of a disease, but it's, 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 you know, the biopsychosocial all across every aspect of wellness. That's what, what true health and wellness is. And, and lastly, I'll just mention that um, it's become so clear to everybody, uh, again, during the pandemic, that, um, that social connection and human connection is so important for our health and well-being. And that's another beautiful space for, for the arts. Um, thanks. Salam, do you have uh, any final takeaways for us? Yes, all that Kimberly said, um, absolutely, that the human connection um, that we all make through our own personal creativity and then also sharing that creativity with others and being in spaces of creativity uh, inherently brings creativity and uh, the whole idea of our human connection back together. And I will personally say whenever someone asks you, do you want to hear a poem? Of course I do. I want to hear a poem because we all have the hidden part of ourselves that loves to express our words. So yes, I wanna hear a poem, thank you. Thank you, and Wesley, any final words? Yeah, I think the main thing is just to remember that there is um, a different way that you can go about um, improving function. So, you know, we always think of physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, and they're very good at uh, treating specific diagnoses in different ways. Um, but it's also important to maintain that human connection and to have that additional route of addressing those needs uh, in a sense that is a little less intimidating, uh, a little more familiar to the patient, and a little more engaging for the patient. You know, nobody wants to go um, to a therapy that is going to feel like work. You want it to feel like playtime. And so um, I think the big thing about creative arts therapies in general is that we can create that ability for them to enjoy of improving their health, of improving whatever functional thing that they were addressing, um, and uh, being able to do that is, is just a fun way uh, to go about doing things. Excellent. What a wonderful discussion. This has been very informative uh, and it just adds, it adds to the value of what we do for our patients. I really appreciate all that you do for our patients across the lifespan and all that you're doing for our patients during this very challenging time. So thank you so much. And thank you for being with us today. And we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash nursing network.